Talk. Identity. And access. Management. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. Are you surviving? I'm surviving. My identity is sheltering in place. Some of my personas are, are all over the place, though. I'm, I can't take responsibility for all of it. The crowded house. <laughs> crowded uh, headspace. So why don't we dive right into it? Because we have a guest, and his name is Andy Clark. He's a principal consultant at Okta, and he's here to help us navigate some of the questions that we might have around some of those use cases that they get into, you know, OpenID versus SAML and some other things. Welcome to the show, Andy. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, glad to be here. So we met as part of a deployment that was being done they were working on for a mutual customer, but I know that you've been in the IT space for a long time and maybe even specifically IAM. Can you talk a little bit about when did you get into IAM and, and how long have you been in it? Uh, sure. So I've actually been in you know IT space for a long time, uh, over 30 years. I've probably been in IAM for about uh, about 10 years, and the, the last uh, five of which has been with Okta. Um, you know, I, I, thinking back on this, you know, it used to be that uh, almost everyone who was in a developer system architect role was actually into identity, because back in the older days, you know most of the applications had it built in. You know, it might have been backed up by a database or something, but pretty much every application had its own unique, you know, username, password, its own experience. And this whole concept of, you know, identity and access management um, wasn't really there. You know, it was something that was uh, kind of gradually uh, evolving over time where we were able to start taking away that identity piece, which was pretty much being duplicated and not always very well from application to application and say, hey, let's just make this, you know, a kind of a skill set and a discipline all on its own. And let's get very professional about it, you know, best practices, the best protocols and stuff like that. And kind of, you know, it, it created this IAM space that, you know, people like myself that had been into it, you know, from the developer side, you know, doing uh, individual client applications and stuff. Now I kind of just uh, kind of pivoted over. So now I said, okay, I'll be the person who does the identity and everybody else can use it. So it seems like most people kind of, well, so this is my theory, is that most people kind of fell into the IAM space around 10, 15 years ago because of, you know, the kind of the need to is more of a business need or security need or, you know, some sort of request to do that. Um, so I get, I, I'm going to count that. <laughs> so you weren't, you weren't born and baptized in IAM. You just kind of fell into it like, like other people. Right. Well, exactly. What you said, you know, I was working on a, a large, um, product, uh, in the health field and, you know, it had its own built-in identity and stuff. And, you know, they had their own directory services, uh, active directory for that place. And they're like, you know, why do we have to do everything twice? You know, why do we have, uh, you know, this for our, you know, email and stuff like that. And then we have to do something else over here. We got to remember another password. And of course, everybody wrote them down in post-it notes. So the whole thing came as a request saying, you know, you, is there any way we can possibly kind of tie this into our system? So eventually as an organization, we kind of pivoted to that and we gave them the option that, hey, you could have this thing just tied to your thing. So that was one of the original inbound federations that I ever worked on. And that was almost 20 years ago. Hmm. So what was inbound federation back like back then? I mean, 
I don't I don't think Active Directory was around as you know Novell based. It, it was. It was so. Uh, if you think of the uh, original um, Active Directory in like a uh, Windows Server 2000, actually went back to uh, NT. So right. there was this uh, foundational directory service there. Um, it wasn't quite as you know polished as say ADFS is right now. But LDAP and that stuff has been around for a while. So you know a lot of these bigger institutions they they had these big directory services and they had all their employees in there, and they used them to do like desktop applications and stuff like that. The 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 Kerbos path. Um, but, you know, we were an external thing that wasn't part of a desktop, and they're like, we got to cross this bridge somehow. And like I said, we were able to do it, and, you know, obviously it was, you know, met with, you know, big rounds of applause, everybody was very happy. So that was my first uh, introduction, like, okay, this is the way it really needs to go, because, you know, just from a, a consolidation standpoint, it's kind of the, um, the you know, what has to happen as we got more and more uh, digital and there was more applications to have all these separate entities and separate passwords and personas, as Jim was mentioning earlier, to have all these separate personas is just too unwieldy after a while, both for the user and for the IT people trying to maintain it all. What about what have you seen that has changed from then till now? What is the biggest kind of evolution? Well, when you look at, um, you know, back in, uh, earlier days, we didn't really have the uh, protocol. It was pretty much, you know, every application for itself. You know, a lot of things were back-ended by databases and stuff like that. And a lot of the uh, implementations weren't all that good. I mean, I've come across systems that had back-end databases where all the passwords were in clear text. You know, that's not a good idea. So, you know, the, one of the, the things that you see now is people are just much more cognizant of identity and security and securing your both your assets, your content, and, the, you know, the uh, potentially the, uh, the uh, personal information of the different users, whether it's, you know, credit card information or health information or something like that. Um, you know, with all the news that we've had over the last couple of years about all the, um, you know, different uh, hacking attempts and all the stolen data and stuff like that, we're just so aware of it now that the need for a professional implementation where this stuff is done right and not just left to somebody's you know, idea of the day, I think that's really kind of taken a hold in our society. And people are really not just expecting it, but they're asking for it. They want the second factors. They want to know that their, their data and their uh, information is being secured properly. Yeah, I know we want to talk about some of those access management federation protocols, but just not to get too off on a tangent here, you, know, you said something just now that kind of like piqued my interest, and that's people asking for second factors, MFA, et cetera. And I still find that a lot of organizations um, do not necessarily take that same point of view when it comes to their customer base about making sure that it's offered as part of their service, not necessarily mandating it, but making it part of their authentication service, you know, for their, uh, their online credentials or online. Have you, do you see the same thing or am I looking at it from a different perspective? Well, it's a, if I, you know, I looked at it a couple of years ago, so Okta has always had um, second factors available. Um, we keep adding more to it, but we've always had something available. And, you know, in years past, when you were you know, kind of, you know, showing, okay, here's the features that you have, you know, we can do this. And a lot of it, well, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt the user experience. That's too much yeah. friction. I, I don't really want to do that. Um, but as time goes on, especially like say in the last two years, now it's like the, the end user is expecting their stuff to be very well protected. So I would say the vast majority, especially of new stuff that I'm doing, um, the vast majority, they're actually saying we have to have an offering now because 
if we're if we're not, we may lose these people. Like this is a potential customer for me, but if they think that we're not taking care of their data, they're going to maybe go to my competitor. They're going to go next door. They're going to do something else. So uh, we find that maybe not it's not mandated, but they are definitely one offering it. And in a lot of the surveys that we do and, and the different uh, feedback we get from um, you know the different IT people and the uh, business managers is that they are not getting the pushback that they got maybe even three and four years ago uh, just because people are, I mean, it's, it's so much in the news, people are just really wanting to know that their data is well protected and they're willing to go through the, the hassle of, you know, having a, a, an app on your telephone, on, on your, your smartphone, or to have a fob or to have something else that they need to do. The, uh, the barriers for, especially with younger people, they've gotten so used to it that it's just second nature now. Yeah, I think you're hitting on it there. It's, and it's amazing how quickly the tide has turned. But I think it's part, uh, partly that the technology has gotten easier, but I don't think that's as, it, it as much as it's ubiquitous. It's Everybody's done it, had to do it somewhere. You had to do it to, to make your Gmail work, or you had to do it to make your banking site work. So now to do it for some other site that's a, um, maybe a lower level of affiliation. They're not protecting your financial assets, but it's still important information. Going ahead and using the second factor isn't as much of a hindrance on the user experience. So, so Jim, you make a really good point there. Um, you know, depending on the industry, we see the adoption taking place uh, at a much different rate. So you mentioned, you know, a banking industry or maybe healthcare where you have very valuable data, you know, your, your, your money's in there. You don't want someone to get a hold of that. You don't want someone making withdrawals from your bank account. Uh, in those places, the barriers uh, to the extra security layers, they broke down very, very fast. Now, other things that were more just informational or trying to, you know, kind of protect some content, um, that's a little bit slower in coming. But yeah, you, you make good points there. Depending on the industry, the barriers to uh, or the friction that people are complaining against have disappeared much, much faster. Yeah, the I think also I think Apple does, deserves a lot of credit for the improvements to the MFA experience because they've really kind of forced it on users but they made it relatively easy from a, you know, even my grandma can, you know, use the MFA that Apple has interested in. It's gotten it more into the psyche of the public of, you know, why it's important. So I think that education helps, but also, you know, the user experience is a big part of that because people will just find ways around things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Andy mentioned another thing, which was around um, uh, Okta having this capability for many years. And I think most of the, uh, single sign-on or access management vendors have some way to solve the problem, but it's gotten easier and easier every year. And now for customers to deploy that technology in a in kind of a lower friction model becomes easier and kind of use this as a transition. The, the same thing with implementing federation protocols. So when, you know, if you rewind the tape 10 years, SAML was the only federation protocol or, or the, the main one, I should say. Um, and it was a little bit of a mystery, I think, for most of us. As you, as you learn something and, and first start getting accustomed to it, it seems complex. Well, uh, the tools that are available today have made integration with SAML a lot easier. And OpenID Connect is, is kind of the next wave. And Andy, I think you're working with a lot of customers who have to integrate applications. And I'm wondering, kind of, what is your framework for thinking when you're determining whether or not SAML is the best um, 
protocol to integrate with or using OpenID Connect? Uh, what is your framework for thinking? So, you know, SAML is a good protocol and it's been around for a very long time. Like I said, it was one of the first ones that came out. Um, but like, uh, like many things, uh, things improve over time. So OpenID Connect, which is built on top of OAuth, um, that's the improvement of SAML. Basically, you can do everything SAML can do, plus a lot more, and you can do it a lot better, and it's much, much easier to, to work with. So the, the implement, uh, implementations of that is that the SAML has a, a level of friction for the developer who's trying to incorporate it, but they've kind of removed all that for, um, for OpenID Connect. And because it's um, an actual uh, add-on to OAuth, now you kind of got both aspects of it. You've got the uh, authentication aspects of OpenID Connect, but on the, based on top of the same protocol, you also have the authorization aspects of uh, OAuth 2. So now that you can kind of take care of both halves of a modern application, you know, you can use OpenID Connect to um, authenticate the users so they can get into your client application and actually, you know, start seeing content and navigating. But then if you're trying to use uh, something that's off of a, a back-end web servers, microservices are very popular. So if you're trying to do something and pull information, say your banking information or transactions or maybe some of your, your health tests, you're trying to pull that off a remote service, now you have OAuth which is able to protect that leg of the journey, but yet it's all done from the same uh, initial interaction with your identity provider. So you can get your ID tokens, your access tokens, and now you've got the full breadth of the protection that you need, whereas SAML really didn't have all of that. It just had you know, the beginnings of it, which was great, but it just didn't have all of the uh, capabilities that uh, OpenID Connect and OAuth have. Because if you look at something like OpenID Connect, when you're making the request, you can actually specify via scopes exactly how much information you want delivered back to that application. So if you think of it from a, an integration and an IT standpoint, each application gets only what it needs for it to operate efficiently, and you don't get all the other information that maybe you don't need but another app does need. So you can use a single integration and kind of fine tune it for each application, but yet it's only one integration. Whereas in the old SAML world, each one of those would have to be a separate integration because everything was hard-coded and you didn't have that ability to kind of do things, you know, nimbly. And it was a bigger IT burden. So now we've kind of come this full scope here, which, like you were saying before, you know, we've made the technology much easier to use, it's much easier to implement, and you're actually more secure at the end of that. It feels to me like, um, you know, there are still a lot of cloud applications that only support SAML. I would imagine that's part of the framework of looking at it is like, if the application can only support SAML, there's not really uh, a debate to be had. Um, in terms of, you know, if you're not in that scenario, so say it's a custom built application, you could choose SAML or OpenID. I got the impression from what you're saying that you feel that OpenID is a, an easier integration for the developer. Is that, is that what you said? Uh, much, much, much easier, yeah. With uh, modern libraries and the, uh, like, uh, things like you know, .NET Core and uh, the latest, um, it's literally about 10 lines of code. You can put OpenID Connect and uh, OAuth into your application. So it really doesn't take any effort whatsoever. So there's really no barrier from a developer point of view to putting it in. It's literally just there if you just, you know, like I said, type a few pieces of configuration information. So it's almost a gimme. Um, 
having SAML um, in the in the field, which you know most of the the large applications, you know all the the Salesforce and the Zoom and Concur box, they all use SAML because they were designed at some point ago. Um, they will probably eventually uh, move off that and go into uh, OpenID Connect, um, but the yeah, use of OpenID Connect for greenfield newer applications is pretty much 100%. Unless you have a, a large development stack where you want to just keep everything the same until you make your um, uh, transition from you know the older stuff to the newer protocols. Unless you're just trying to keep parity, um, I would say you know 99% of all greenfield applications will use uh, OpenID Connect and OAuth instead of SAML. So my experience in in deployment of uh, cloud IDPs, I'll call it cloud IDP, that's one of my, my terms, is that you can have a mix of SAML and OpenID Connect. So, for example, there's a use case where we want to federate with a partner, and that partner has their own IDP. And, you know, from our, our cloud IDP, we've got applications integrated via OpenID Connect. Well, those people could use SAML to authenticate into our IDP, and then get into the OpenID Connect application. That's a valid configuration, right? Uh, correct, yeah. So using um, something like that where you're going from one identity provider to another, eventually to a target application, that type of, uh, we call it inbound federation. Yeah, that's still very, very um, prevalent. And just like you're, you're going the last mile to the target app in SAML, uh, you can also go and open ID Connect, and you can also go the first mile. So if you want to take a hop from you know the the original IDP to an uh, intermediary one, that could also be uh, Open ID Connect as well as SAML. So if you look at the evolution of things, uh, the ecosystem is now basically supporting both uh, because of all the legacy applications that we have, but yet they're offering the new stuff. So as the uh, industry matures and applications mature, you'll see it goes from probably 90% SAML now with all the embedded stuff that we have. And over time that will switch until eventually it'll be, you know, 10% um, SAML. The same way that like, you know, WS Fed has kind of just gone down to just a few Microsoft products. Even the Microsoft products that support SAML now. Um, you will, I think we'll see that shift over time as the newer protocol kind of takes over from the older one. one of the yeah, and I, sorry, go, go ahead, ahead Jeff. Jeff. No, you go ahead. Oh, well, I want to go back to, you mentioned the word scopes. Can you explain what that means in the concept of OpenID? Oh, uh, sure. So if you think of um, a client application as uh, wanting to authenticate this user and get some type of information. Maybe they need to know, you know, what city they live in so they can drive some of the content or they just need some kind of uh, information about the user, but they don't need everything. So the concept of a scope is a way for the application that is requesting the user to be identified uh, in the form of an ID token can say, I need to see this information about the user. And that way the, um, the IT people can set up their policies in such a way where it says, okay, if this application is asking for something, this is all that they're um, authorized to get. This is only information I want to give that particular, because I don't need anything else. So the scope allows the, the calling app to request just the information we need, like the, the least possible set of information, and not just get the entire basket uh, if they don't need it. And it gives the IT people a way of kind of controlling that, you know, we have some things here that you know may be more sensitive. These are less sensitive. You can only have what you actually need. So it's really a way of giving some more fine-grained uh, information about the user, so they can kind of control the dissemination of uh, you know 
could be potentially sensitive user stuff. You mentioned that's controlled by policy on the, I guess, the data source. How, how exactly was, does that work? What kind of policy is it and where does that get managed? So obviously, you know, from Okta, um, I know how we've implemented it. And in our, uh, it's called an authorization server, which actually mints the tokens that are sent back to the client application. So in our implementation of an authorization server, we look at the uh, incoming request and, you know, everything is identified by a client ID in the OpenID Connect world. So we look at the incoming request, the client ID, um, the user that's trying to get the access, and then we look at the scopes, and then we just have a system of policies, uh, kind of a hierarchical framework that says, okay, for this particular client ID, for this particular user, uh, we're going to allow these scopes to, to work. And if it meets those criteria, we mint them an ID token and we send it off. If it doesn't, if they ask for things that they're not uh, allowed to get, everything's blocked or we can require user consent to allow more information to go forward. So you have a whole set of controls now that you can kind of protect what you're giving out about the user um, as opposed to SAML, as an earlier discussion where it was all or nothing. You basically uh, made a request and you got the entire basket every time. So it sounds like there's then a way that the user can directly influence what information uh, they want to share with that service, provided that option is set up on the authorization server. Uh, correct. So if you think of it, it there's, there's three different parties involved here. Uh, without going into a lot of the terminology, you have the user at, who owns the data. It's their stuff. You have the, the client application, you know, the developers who are creating that, who says, okay, this is information I'd like to have to have a good user experience. And then you have the IT people who are acting as the broker to say, okay, here's what I'm going to allow through and here's what I'm not. And then the idea of user consent gives the, the IT people and the developer a chance to say, we'd like this information if you're willing to give it to us. So now we're putting some of the control back into the hands of the end user so that you know, they can decide, you know, for this application, I'm going to let my, my, my city and state go through, but for another application, I'm not. So really, you know, it, it gives the tools to each one of the, of the interesting parties in order to kind of control what they need how they're going to get it. And, you know, for the user, basically they'll know that I, I allowed this to happen or I'm going to hold it back. Gotcha. And then what about the term flows that comes up often in OpenID connect and SAML? What does that mean? So uh, what flows, it's a way of um, getting to the, the end product you need, which uh, for SAML, it's uh, an assertion for a uh, OpenID connect or OAuth. Uh, it's a token. And, in the old SAML world, basically this is just one way that it worked. You, you sent a, a request and they got a response back. Um, when you go into the more modern stuff like OpenID Connect, there's a, a couple of different flows depending on exactly uh, what type of application you have and what kind of device you're on. So if you're in a single page application where everything's in, in uh, the client side and you, know, you don't have any uh, ways of holding you know, um, secret information, um, there's certain flows that allow that to work securely without giving away information that people could just see in a browser. Uh, if you're on server side, you have different controls, you have a little bit more secrecy, so you can use you know, higher orders of um, uh, protocol protection, basically both what they call front channel and back channel, in order to give an even more secure flow. And then you also have flows that are designed just for like machine to machine communication. You know, this server 
wants to talk, get information from another server. And it's really not a, a user context at all involved. They just want to protect that um, uh, communication channel, but they want to do it in a very organized ways where there's a certain amount of expiry. They don't want to just give it a username and password that's good all the time. They want to have something that, hey, you can only use it for X amount of time before we have to reevaluate, and you're only allowed to get certain information, but you know, not everything for, for this uh, particular service, but more for a different service. So these idea of flows are just ways of uh, taking that um, SAML approach, which is one size fits all. And now we have separate flows for each of your independent use cases. All right. I hijacked that. Jim, go for it. No, that was great. That was really good. Um, so I, I guess, Andy, a couple other things, uh, you know, future trends in IAM. So kind of what are some of the trends that you're seeing? To me, the, the kind of the, I don't know if I want to call it the elephant in the room or the thing that's always been so key to choosing the right uh, CIAM platform has been around user management, the ability to get people on board, things like that. Um, I feel like that's a trend that uh, the identity provider, cloud identity providers are now kind of building out those capabilities. But I wanted to see if that if you agree with that point and then other things that maybe you're seeing, things like analytics, machine learning, things like that. So there's, yeah, I definitely agree with your point there. So there's a lot of um, things that, you know, we see as far as, you know, the, the trends and, you know, what customers are asking for. So definitely if you have a, an IAM platform of some kind, um, you, you want to build the, the best practices into it. And, and having a platform like that that's kind of dedicated to that, you know, the, the, the platform itself is able to kind of keep up on, you know, what's the latest uh, protocol, you know, what types of things have happened in the industry that identified a flaw and that identity platform can fix those quickly and easily and then allow the, the, uh, the, the end users, the end products, not to have to worry about those details. So if you think of, you know, the old school where, you know, you had a server on-prem and then you did, you know, monthly, yearly updates to it. Well, it could take a long time for a security floor to get, actually get patched up or anything. Now with the cloud-based uh, IAM solution, that stuff can happen pretty much as soon as they figure it out. They can put a patch in and you're, you're always very, very up-to-date. Um, one of the other things that uh, we do see a lot is that, you know, as we were talking before, you know, when a lot of applications had their own independent uh, identity system, um, lots of organizations, especially uh, a larger, older organizations that might have had a lot of mergers and acquisitions along the way, they might find themselves with, you know, four, five, six, dozen, hundred different identity stores. You know, they could have three or four LDAPs for external customers. They could have multiple uh, active directories because they, they merged with other companies. And if you can think of the, uh, the difficulty for an IT person to say, you know, if I need to um, restrict someone because we have a possibility of their account was breached and I want to take away their access privileges, but maybe they're spread across six or seven different directory structures, how hard is it for them to do that? And how many different places and how fast can they react to a potential breach when you know, everything is so disparate and there's separate systems that have you know, their own protocols involved and it's just hard for people to manage it. So one of the trends we're seeing is that a lot of uh, customers in order to have that unified management where they can be very nimble, they can protect their users better because it's all in a centralized place. 
They're actually trying to consolidate all of these disparate um, directory structures and identity platforms into one uh, large one that can handle everything. You know, it can handle delegated authentication back to something if it has to. So there's a nice transition, um, but it can also uh, hit many different kinds of targets at whether they're the older SAML, the newer OpenID connects, uh, the machine to machine stuff so that the, the um, ability for the IT people and the, the secure, the CISOs to actually take that um, large base they have of users and get themselves around it and put, you know, coherent policies in place, have uh, whatever initiatives they have, maybe it's for um, uh, things like, you know, having a second factor or zero trust or having some type of, you know, um, velocity policy where, you know, they can check if people are, are you know, in California one minute and New York the next minute, they can have all of these new things that we can detect now and, to put those on all these other disparate systems that are older technology just wasn't even practical. They couldn't get their arms around it. So the trend is really to try to get everything into one place so that they can have a, a, at least a half a good chance of actually managing it in some kind of coherent and timely manner. Do you have a, a rule of thumb for how much data putting in your IDP, um, your directory, I know the product you have is the universal directory, but how much data can you realistically put into that uh, versus you want to keep it in some other store and make it available uh, either by API or some other method? So you can actually put, I mean, our system, we can put five meg per person in there. And so you can put a lot of information about the person. Um, you know, we try not to put too much, you know, customer centric, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, application centric, uh, because then it kind of you know, takes away from the idea that this is an identity platform, not a user repository or a, a, a repository for information that's very client specific. We don't want their, you know, uh, banking transactions in Okta. So uh, we try to keep it identity centric. Um, but one of the things you mentioned um, brings up a good point. There is information that you don't want to store in Okta because potentially it's too sensitive, you know, with things like GDPR and stuff like that, you want to kind of not spread your data out too far. So uh, in Okta, we have a thing called inline hooks, whereas like say before you mint your, your token, you can actually use an API call, go off to another system that maybe has like very sensitive information. Maybe it's some of your health data or some financial stuff and it will get minted into the token and then sent to the client app for consumption. But Okta never actually has that data. It's not part of Okta. So we can have your Okta data store to be really just things about your identity that you'd probably want to share among all of your applications. But then the very specific stuff or very sensitive stuff, you can now put somewhere else, but Okta will actually link out to it dynamically, real time, pull it in, mint it uh, with the signed security token before it delivers it. So it really kind of gives you a lot of flexibility in just how you're managing your data, where it's stored, how it's used and how it's disseminated. So speaking of flexibility, I certainly appreciate the time you've been able to give us today. I know that Octane was gonna be coming up here in a couple of weeks and I know Jim is heartbroken that he's not gonna be able to make the trip out to San Francisco. I guess I got a couple of questions. Uh, the first one is really more of a comment uh, and I think that's, you know, Octo was really early into the process of the current health situation to cancel their conference and lots of other conferences have kind of followed after that, which I think is a good thing because it provided a lot of clarity for people who weren't quite sure, you know, what to expect, <laughs> uh, especially a few weeks ago when it was announced. And now it's being turned into a virtual conference, which I believe is free for anyone to attend, 
uh, as long as they register. Can you talk maybe a little bit about what your expectations are out of that? Uh, sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, so it definitely was not canceled. <laughs> so like you said, it's it's been turned into a virtual event. Um, the uh, I guess the, the good part of the silver lining is, is that now we can make it available to many, many more people. Uh, it is free now, so no, you no longer have to pay a registration fee. Um, it basically frees you up from the cost as well as the logistics of actually, you know, San Francisco is a wonderful place to visit, but if you're busy and you live in New York, it's, it's you know, a little bit of a time commitment. So basically we were freeing you up of the cost and the logistics. Um, but as far as the, the conference itself and the offerings, um, all of our uh, keynote speakers are, are, have signed up to do it virtually. So instead of seeing them on the main stage, they're going to be doing it in a studio and then broadcasting it live. So like I'm very interested in seeing a Colin Powell, He's going to be yeah. one of the keynote speakers. And, you know, as a, a um, ex-Secretary of State, I'm sure he has some interesting um, viewpoints on what's happening in the world right now with the virus and everything. So uh, all that's still going to happen. Uh, all of our partners are still going to be there. So instead of having a booth set up where you can go over and talk to somebody and see a little demo, it's now all going to be virtual, but there will be people there live that will be able to take your questions, talk to you on the phone, you know, text with you. They can give you demos through the, um, the, uh, the internet interface we have, which I saw a demo of it today. It looks really cool. So it's kind of, kind of a fun thing. Uh, not quite as easy as being there to shake hands, but since we can't shake hands anyway, um, <laughs> right. it's not a bad experience. Um, and there's a lot of like really cool products that uh, they'll be announcing. So, you know, as far as, you know, missing out on the opportunity to go see the, the Golden Gate Bridge and Fisherman's Wharf, uh, there's still a lot of really good content with good partner interactions and just uh, all the breakout sessions. Everything is still there. It's just in a, in a different format. So, and plus, it's all available. You know, if you can't make the live, everything's going to be recorded and provided to you. So, you know, if you are busy, you can watch it later on that day or the next day. That's really cool. I'm really interested to see how this turns out because Octa or Octane usually is one of the bigger drawing conferences out there. Uh, I have a feeling this may add to the numbers that you probably see as far as attendance goes, especially, you know, people being uh, asked to stay at home and you know, looking for fun things to do, right? No better thing than an IT conference online. <laughs> exactly. And like I said, they're really working hard. So Okta is a, a remote digital company anyway. So we already have people that know how to do this. And there was a lot of stuff that like the, um, there's a lot of uh, pre-conference training that we do, you know, training classes for certifications. Well, that was always going to be remote. I mean, we we have people coming out there and there were, you know, hands-on seminars for that. Uh, but that's something we offer every day remotely. So we already had the technology. We already had the know-how. So we're just expanding it now to do, you know, these other things. And like I said, I saw a demo. It's, it's really kind of cool looking. You know? <laughs> I, I also will miss the opportunity to go out to Fisherman's Wharf, but um, I think they did a wonderful job and that, you know, you know, they're very creative. It's visually stunning. It looks very good. And like I said, we have all our keynote speakers, uh, all the different breakout sessions, all the partners, they're all still there. They're all going to be available and, you know, definitely make the most of it in this kind of changing environment we have. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm looking forward to it. Um, well, I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, Jim, do you have any last questions for Andy before we let him get back to uh, the real world? No, I mean, is there any canned lobster bisque that we should get to eat while we're watching? <laughs> this is, we're not going to get to Fisherman's Wharf. Or sourdough bread. Sourdough bread, that's another one, yeah. If you know of any yeah. good brands, let me know. <laughs> 
Most definitely. Uh, if I find anything good, I'll definitely uh, put it up on your website. But uh, uh, I'm going to make the most of it. And uh, being here in Ohio, I'm, I'm pretty far away, but uh, I'll be there in spirit. Cool. Well, Andy, appreciate it. And uh, I think well, thank we'll you very much and, for having me. Yeah, we'll go ahead and leave it there for, for this time. And uh, we'll talk with folks in the next one. Thanks for listening. listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.